Handbrake Off is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined, uh, at least digitally, by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas, writers for The Athletic. Hello, guys. Hello, man. Hello. Hello. We're all in separate uh, places. We are in uh, in self-isolation. None of us uh, are real as far as we know, but uh, we've decided to keep it safe. Uh, Lee Dixon couldn't make it. Uh, he, he does, as you said, Amy, he doesn't want to speak to us even even down a microphone now. Um, but it was his birthday the other day, so I think we should wish him a happy birthday. Happy yeah, happy birthday, Lee. Lee. If you're listening. Um, as I say, we're broadcasting from various parts of London uh, and um, because of uh, the fact that uh, we are all going to be self-isolating for the next three months. By the way, guys, before we start, how are you coping with no football? Are you... Um, are you managing? What are you doing to fill the aching void? I'm enjoying my new life as a referee in our house, uh, trying to make sure there's not too much aggro. Um, it's a massive challenge. I have a newfound respect for referees. Yeah. Is there VAR being used? I think I might have to install some CCTV um, just so I can, act, can actually have a real serious sense of exactly who hit who, where and at what place. James, what about you? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm coping all right. I've bought myself FIFA on the PlayStation, so I'm going to, oh, yeah. you know, play out all the games. It's sort of digital recreation. I think that's going to be my uh, my solace in this next few weeks. Well, I mean, a lot of people apparently are playing Championship Manager. Um, I mean, I'm speaking to some younger friends of mine who said it's really just like their student days, to be honest. There's not a huge amount of difference just in playing championship manager for three months. Some people, of course, are watching films, catching up on box sets. So we thought before we start this show, um, we'd, we'd ask what your favourite football film is. James, I'll come to you first. Do you have a favourite football film? Yeah, I do, actually. It's a film, I don't know if you've seen it, it's called Next Goal Wins. It's a, a documentary about the Samoan football team, American Samoa, and their attempts to climb the FIFA world rankings. And it's a very sort of heartwarming film about, well, just about a team that have really seemingly not going anywhere trying to achieve something together and it's a really good watch so seek it out i think it's on amazon if you want to see it amy what about you um just seconding james's choice it's an absolutely fantastic film i loved it it made me feel glad to be alive it was one of those um as usual i've got a few to choose from i, I <laughs> for, for for reasons um of self-promotion i won't be talking too much about 89 except to say that the time i uh, experienced in making that doc um, with Lee and the rest of the gang was absolutely stupendous. And going back over that that story in great detail was um, was magical. And I'm sure Lee would have chosen it, so I'll say that on his behalf. Um, yeah. Mine, I'll go down to I'll bring it down to two. One is um, well known Escape to Victory, which uh, when I was about <laughs> I don't know when it came out, but I was probably about nine or ten or eleven. And I, uh, for my birthday party, I was allowed to choose a video to have at home with a bunch of friends who were all girls. Uh, and I chose Escape to Victory and loved it, but I'm not sure anyone else did that much um, of my little friends. But uh, I watched it quite recently with, uh, with, the, with the kids. And it's very interesting to see from a generational point of view. I mean, quite apart from the fact that, as far as they're concerned, Sylvester Stallone is a real footballer. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. could, they were trying to kind of trying to assess who was a footballer and who was an actor, and it got really, really muddled in their in their brains. Um, and and uh, I got to the point where they're actually playing the famous match, 
if none of you have seen Escape to Victory, you just must. It's legendary. Um, we're playing a famous match at the end, which is the Germans against the uh, Allied prisoners of war. And uh, Pele goes off injured, clutching his, uh, his ribs. He gets a frightful kick and the Allies are 4-0 down. And at the moment that Pele goes off injured, my youngest just burst into tears and said, I'm not watching any more of this. It was just all a bit too much. I, I forced oh. him. It was all right in the end. Um, my, my obscure choice is a film called The Final Kick, which was a, ahead of its time, really. It was almost a kind of reality TV style, filming people watching an event, which was the 1994 World Cup final. And some uh, filmmakers got together and had about 50 different film crews in different countries watching people watch the same game. And it, it is on YouTube somewhere, and I absolutely loved it. And it was the first time I think I ever really got the sense of football being this globalised sport where you felt that, you know, across the entire globe, people are as transfixed. And some of the characters in it, there was a harem from Cameroon, there was some monks from Czechoslovakia, there was some people at a factory in Iran. Uh, it, was, it, it was really random different types of people all reacting to the same event yeah. uh, emotionally, and it's cracking. So if you feel like it, check that out. I am, um, as far as Escape to Victory is concerned, Michael Caine plays, I believe, the fattest POW there's ever been. He must have been on extra rations. Um, as far as uh, football films, I, do you know what? I know I'm going to get abuse for this, but I quite like Goal. <laughs> really? I, do. I, quite, I think it's quite sweet, especially the first one. He goes to Newcastle yeah. and he's cold and he's in the rain and he's getting knocked about in training. I quite like it. It's obviously, it's a comic book. And the other one, uh, more seriously, is Maradona, uh, which is, is way more than a football film. It, I, I genuinely think it's operatic and, and the way it starts with the chase through the, the streets of uh, of Naples uh, into the stadium and 80,000 people, not for a game, just for him to turn up, uh, are just going crazy. Uh, and it ends pretty much with the uh, with, with in the same stadium with the entire crowd booing him because he told the Italians to support Argentina in the semi-final and him swearing at them when they're playing the national anthem, I thought was just amazing and I felt I never thought I'd say this but I felt sorry for him I, I thought it was a, a classic bit of filmmaking but you know he's made some great documentaries hasn't he thanks to our good pals at beer52.com you have the opportunity to sip eight yes eight delicious painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world all you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95 and as if that wasn't enough as a listener of the athletic podcast you'll get two extra free beers so that's 10 free beers for those slow at maths beer 52 are beer pioneers they travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. But they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the athletic listeners get two extra free beers. Obviously... <laughs> There's absolutely no football to talk about. Euros have been cancelled for a year, so perhaps that gives England more of a chance in the summer of 21, if it happens then. Uh, so we thought what we'd do is we'd maybe talk about some of our, uh, some of our favourite players. Um, and, and obviously, um, I mean, there's plenty to choose from in the last, say, 20, 30 years. But we thought we'd start with uh, Cesc Fabregas. Uh, Amy, we've had questions from the uh, listeners as well, and we'll certainly come to some of them. But Amy, when did you realise what a special talent he was? Did you were you aware of him before he turned up? You knew he played for Barcelona and for the kids, but did you know much about him when he turned up? 
Well, a little bit in the sense that I think during that era, and you have to put it in its time context, and Arsene Wenger had already um, made such eye-catching statements with the young players that he'd found and brought to, to England and to Arsenal. And I mean, if you think about someone like Nikola Anelka, for example, and he arrived at 17 and was a completely key component in the 98 double, uh, which sort of set the tone really for everything that Arsene Wenger was doing at the club. And you felt at, at one period like almost any young player that he chose or that came to the club under the, in that period was going to be quite special and they were coming for a reason. When you're getting a 16-year-old from Barcelona, it's quite exciting. And it's, it's interesting to also put it in that time context that he shared a, a house uh, or a, not a room, I don't think, but they, 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 they live with the same landlady with Philippe Senderos. And Senderos at the time, although his career never ended up being the great career everybody hoped for, but it was an enormous coup when Arsenal got him. He was the number one central defender that everybody in the world wanted in his age group. Really? Absolutely. You yeah. look back, he was chased by every major club and it was kind of considered an absolute masterstroke that Arsenal got him in. Then they got Sesk and there was this this vibe going on of, of, of great young players coming. Nicholas Bentler came, I think, a little bit after. He was <laughs> highly rated as well. It, but it was quite exciting because you felt like everybody who came was yeah. going to bring something a bit special to the table. Um, I first came across him, obviously saw the... His debut, I remember, uh, uh, you know, in, in playing against Rotherham United in the League Cup, uh, age 16, I think it's the youngest player ever to play for Arsenal. So everyone was kind of interested in that. And, and in those days, League Cup games at Highbury were mobbed. They were always a sellout, uh, no question. It wasn't sort of regarded yeah. at, in the same way as it is now as a sort of second-class game. Um, and, you know, the atmosphere was really excited because people wanted to see the, the, the next generation coming through. And here was this kid who was considered to be young enough good enough everything ready and he was brilliant that day and you thought my god you know this boy's amazing and then he scored I think more or less on one of his next appearances um and everything it, it, I, I guess what they say about young players who turn out to be great is that whenever they move up a level they're always ready you know a lot of the time these kids will have always been playing in age groups above their you know, their exact age. And they always handle it. And Seth was like that. He just handled everything immediately. Um, I'll just tell one quick story uh, that I was never sure if I should say this really because it was kind of not an official business. But I was invited to help Arsenal do some media training for their young players uh, around that time. Uh, they, it was quite a good idea. Arsenal got some radio journalists, some TV journalists, a broadsheet, a tabloid and so on to come in and talk to the kids who were on the fringes of the first team about what to expect from the media, about the pitfalls, the things to watch out for. And um, we also, as part of this this day, had to do some sort of trial uh, interviews with them, some mock interviews to, so that it wasn't just stuff in-house, so it was someone from the outside who wasn't necessarily going to be just telling them everything they, they wanted to know, but maybe things that they needed to know. And uh, definitely Bentner and Fabregas were in that group because they both made quite an impression. You could see straight away that they were young men with massive personalities, albeit in different ways, and with massive confidence, albeit in different ways. Sesk, when I did my mock interview with him, I tried on purpose to sort of try and trip him up so that we could discuss it afterwards. And I'd say, look, you know, you've got to be careful about how you deal with this kind of question and this is what people are looking for and it was around the time uh, of the 50th game at Old Trafford and I asked him about how he felt when his Spanish pal Jose Antonio Reyes God bless him was being hacked about by the Neville brothers yep. on, the, uh, on this match and Cesc turned around and said look I was on the touchline that day I was on the bench I was fuming and to be quite honest with you I wanted to go on that pitch run on the pitch and he more or less said he wanted to smash the, the Neville brothers there and yeah. then to look after his mate. And obviously, this was quite explosive stuff. And if it was a real interview, it would have made quite a lot of noise. So after the event, I sat, sat down and we went through it all. And I said, OK, this was good. You did this well. Da, da, da. But listen, big alarm bell here. You know, in this environment, it's fine. But if you turn around and said you want to smash Phil Neville up 
for what he's done to your teammate. That's going to be a huge story and a lot of trouble for you. And he looked at me straight dead in the eye and said, it's fine. I know, but that's what I think. And I don't mind saying it. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) he was like 17 or something. And you just knew you were dealing with a, with a character, never mind a footballer who had something special about him. Wow, that's a great story. And it was really obvious early on that he was a special talent and a special personality too. I mean, I remember just before he actually formally joined Arsenal, I think it was, he was in the under-17 World Cup uh, in 2003. And he came out of that tournament. Spain were beaten in the final. He was named the best player in that tournament. And he was also the top scorer. I think he scored five goals. So, you know, he was arriving with this brilliant reputation and I was at that Rotherham game too I was at the game where he scored his first Arsenal goal I think which was against Wolves also in the League Cup and at that time I mean there was a, a little clutch of players coming through Amy mentioned Bentner there was Quincy Owusu Abey I don't know if you remember Quincy oh, yeah. as well yeah. um, it was a really exciting young team at that point but he he did stand out and he stood out because unusually for a young player he never made a mistake it wasn't when he was 16, 17, when he came in, it wasn't necessarily, particularly in those first few games, that he was, you know, splitting the defence open or scoring goals. But it was just that his use of the ball was so intelligent. It belied his age, really. And he looked like someone who'd been playing first team football for, you know, five, ten years already. And that was so extraordinary to see as someone of such tender years. And from there, he kicked on and he started to affect games you know, in the way that he did in the youth teams. But that was the most striking thing for me when he first stepped in, just that he looked completely ready, completely comfortable and completely confident in his own talent. I mean, it's interesting because I was wondering if he's the best teenage player uh, any of us have ever seen. I I was thinking back to that Barcelona game when Jack Wilshire played and it was Jack and uh, Sesk up against Xavi and Iniesta, who were pretty useful. And Jack and Sesk looked just as good as the two of them. And and so if I am going to ask, is, is Sesk amongst the best teenagers I've ever seen? I think Jack would be in there as well. But I'd never seen a player, I think what James said is right, I'd never seen a player who knew what he was about and where he was on the pitch at such a young age. I'd never seen someone as good at Ses, uh, as Sesk. Well, Stoney, no. I think that one thing that, that interests me when I was thinking about how I felt about Cesc Fabregas watching him is when Patrick Vieira showed up, and he was 20 when he made his debut, so not a teenager, but not that much past it for Arsenal. I remember this very distinct feeling of thinking, I have never seen a midfield player like this before. Like, he just does things differently. Especially uh, maybe coming into a midfield where previous to that, that wasn't the area of the pitch that was doing the best with with the greatest respect, sort of slightly more... um, pedestrian players like David Hillier and uh, Ian Selly and it wasn't yeah. it wasn't the brightest point in Arsenal's midfield of their history but Vieira arrived and literally changed the job description almost and I never thought that another player would turn up so soon and give you the same feeling and yet Cesc Fabregas arrived and he again seemed like something completely different that that kind of geometry in his head of where yes. everybody is and how to get the ball to them in the in best possible, um, efficient and clever way and quickly, early, uh, was remarkable. I think his, his sense of awareness, but from that middle of the pitch sort of hurly-burly situation that you get in English football, he was able to handle all of that and yet still on top of that have this uh, remarkable vision. Uh, and and the way that he could execute these passes that you you just wanted to applaud the pass. I mean, this question is. I mean, it was from J- uh, Jesper Nielsen. Thank you, Jesper, for uh, asking us a question. Do you do you agree, uh, James? That you've seen a better teenager. I mean, Vieira is a good call as well. Yeah, Vieira was coming towards his late teens, wasn't he, when he joined? Uh, I funnily enough, Ian, I sort of agree in some respects with you that Jack Wilshire actually was as exciting a teenage player, a teenage talent at 16, 17 as kind of anyone that I recall. And I don't know if it was, I was just that little bit more excited because he was a Hale-End boy, you know, he was one of Arsenal's own. There was that element to it too. But in terms of sort of the talent and the aptitude for top-level football, it's, it's really difficult to look past Fabregas. And, you know, what Amy said is right. The way that Arsenal kind of moved 
almost away from Vieira towards Fabregas signalled a broader change, I think, that was happening in the Premier League and maybe football more widely, which was that move from a more physical style to that kind of tiki-taka. You know, Spain dominated international football for sort of the subsequent decade or so. Uh, And I think Arsene, if anything, was probably a little bit ahead of the game there. He sort of made that move with Arsenal towards that very technical style, I think, probably before a lot of other teams in England did. But Fabregas was the key to that. And, you know, he surrounded him with players who could combine in that sort of style. You know, you think of him in 2007 alongside Rosicki, Nasri, Flamini. I mean, the the speed at which Arsenal were moving the ball kind of took over from the speed and the power with which we were used to seeing them run. So he signalled a big stylistic change for Arsenal and, and for Arsenal. Um, I mean, we've had a lot of random questions. There's a little bit of hatred as well, which we will get to at some point. But we want to ask about favourite moments. Um, there's one here. I think this might be from uh, Ashish Kim. Uh, there's something about Cesc throwing a slice of pizza at, uh, at uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. Perhaps the best, most underrated moment in our history. But then this person goes on to ask, what is your favourite topping on a pizza? And should pineapple ever be near a pizza? I think this is a, a debate for another podcast, to be honest with you. <laughs> but um, I, I, that thing that you said, Amy, about the fact that how angry he was after that game and he wanted to punch the Neville brothers, the um, the, the, the players, not the uh, singers. Um, and um, I think we all felt the same way. He decided to just throw pizza at Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, I mean... That would be enough for me to to love him just just that, frankly. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great, it, it, remarkable little bit of detail from um, that fascinating Arsenal Man United period, and um, it was you know I was surprised that the identity of the pizza thrower was kept secret <laughs> for as long as it was, because everybody knew it had happened. Um, I mean, you think back about it, you know, he came, uh, at first had come into the press conference and he changed out of his suit or something like that. And everyone was like, what's going on? Um, <laughs> but when you think of the two sets of players who frankly hated each other, plus yeah. all the staff at Old Trafford who frankly hated Arsenal as well, uh, and, and, and everybody who would have been around, that nobody for quite a long time actually pointed the finger interests me but anyway that you know time went by and people mellow out uh uh Sesk was revealed as the um as the great pizza thrower and uh the detail i believe it was pepperoni i don't know why that feels important but uh you know something hot and spicy probably was was apt certainly any any italian players of that generation would probably walked out the football club if there was pineapple on a pizza <laughs> Yeah, that's fair enough. So if we are talking about favourite moments, um, I'm uh, just because I, I know one of you are going to choose this, uh, I wanted to choose the Tottenham, uh, the second goal against Spurs. I think we all agree that when you get a goal scored and then another one is scored very quickly, it's one of the most exciting things to be in a football stadium. When it's against Tottenham and it's directly from the kickoff. And he nicks the ball and just goes through, puts it through, I think, Ledley King's legs and then plants it brilliantly past the goalkeeper and then runs in the corner. I think that's one of my all-time favourite Emirates moments. Yeah, rightly so. I mean, it was just one of those where you've almost, you barely finished celebrating the first one and then you've got another one sort of turning to the away fans and enjoying that. Very few moments that can top that. In terms of my favourite Fabregas, I mean... It's really tricky. I think I'm going to pick, actually, his goal against AC Milan in the San Siro. Uh, great goal from range. Arsenal won 2-0, I think, that day. Adebayo scored another one from a Walcott cross. And I think after Fabregas scored, he kind of went over to Arsene Wenger and they had an embrace on the touchline. And it was just kind of this moment of this young team, you know, really sort of showing signs of blossoming in front of Wenger's eyes. And it was quite a beautiful moment really and a brilliant goal too so I'll, I'll go for that one well you've both taken the good ones so <laughs> I, I, and uh we can't we can't really choose pizza as a moment so uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna go for a slightly offbeat one but when aaron ramsey had his leg broken at stoke there was something about the way that arsenal's players responded to that moment and Seth was the manifestation of that that was very meaningful um and sesk I think, if memory serves, uh, got one of the goals. Arsenal went on to win yes. the game 3-1. Uh, 
um, with, with, with Ramsey off the pitch. And they were clearly all deeply, deeply affected and upset. But you could tell that for Sesk, winning the game was uh, an absolute necessity after what he'd seen. He, it was like he had something in his mind that clicked, whatever he was feeling that meant as a sense of a quest for some sort of justice, they had to try and win that game. And he was interviewed afterwards, and the interview is, is there on YouTube as well and worth a watch, and speaks with incredible power and eloquence uh, about how he felt at the time and how upset he was by not just what had happened to Ramsey, but also there was a kind of cumulative effect with seeing something similar happen with Diaby and with Eduardo. Um, but he was like, he took responsibility personally, I felt, to kind of transmit everything that everybody was feeling uh, at Arsenal Football Club about Aaron, about these injuries uh, and about what they were trying to achieve at a time when probably it was the worst moment for that sense of the way to upset Arsenal is lay one on them early and make sure you go in and it hurts because they'll, they'll, they'll falter. Well, I mean, that leads nicely on, actually, because Larson asked the question, um, was he the right choice of uh, of captain after uh, after uh, William Gallas? But it sounds like he absolutely... Well, it was the right choice I before think, William Gallas, I would argue. <laughs> I guess, but I guess you can you can uh, compare the way that the captains reacted to the, one of those injuries, because Gallas, of course, was the one who sat on the pitch at the end of the, the away game at Birmingham when Eduardo had almost had his foot taken off. And there was that reaction as opposed to Seth's reaction after the Stoke game. I mean, what do you think, James? Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing as Amy was talking. You know, the incidents obviously, unfortunately, share certain parallels, but the reaction to them couldn't have been more different. And I remember, different, I remember when um, Gallas was stripped of the Arsenal captaincy, I think it was in... 2008 and he'd made some comments about other players in the press seemingly Robin Van Persie, Samir Nasri and you know it was it was very damaging I think to the dressing room to the morale there were kind of factions emerging and to to give it to Fabregas who was very young still at that time he really stepped up and I think you know some players slightly wilt when they're given the armband but Fabregas he he really grew he stepped up and he led Arsenal through that period and he was kind of the symbol of that team really the whole way that team had been constructed was you know bringing in these young players from abroad and having to find bargains and rough diamonds and you know nothing really could have symbolized that better than Fabregas who arrived as a teenager and developed into one of the best midfielders in the league so yeah undoubtedly the right choice as captain for me what do you I mean there's an interesting question here from Keith Bird would he make it into your best all-time team um, I mean, assuming that you play four-four-two, uh, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because we have had, you know, you could put Petit and Vieira in there and be pretty, you know, you'd be okay with that. But would he be in your best uh, all-time team, Amy? No, I mean, I, I couldn't say that immediately without thinking it through properly. Not, but yeah. I, but he'd definitely make it into one of my f- favourite players of his generation, for sure. Yeah, in terms of players that I've watched live, you know, in my lifetime for Arsenal, I think... You know, it's very tempting, isn't it, when you're looking at central midfield to say, well, if you're going to have a pair, Patrick Vieira and Cesc Fabregas, you know, are, are probably the best that I've seen in that period. But even saying that, you know, Santi Cazorla, Aaron Ramsey, there are a lot of other uh, players to mention. But he's he's right up there in terms of talent and ability, undoubtedly. And I, I yeah, would he, would he be in yours? Um, well, I always liked Vieira and uh, and Fabregas together, but I always had a theory that the reason Patrick Vieira left is because he realised that Cesc Fabregas was better than him and that he would have to do the donkey work for this young kid who was about 12 years younger than him and hmm. didn't really want to. But I just love the, the combination of the two, the tall and the short, the, the, the tiger, more tigerish in the tackle, somebody who's better at doing long passes. I think it's a combination that they're about as perfect as you can get. Yeah, it's interesting because they didn't really play together all too often, did they, at Arsenal? I mean, you know, effectively it was Vieira out, Fabregas in as far as Arsenal was concerned. But uh, yeah, I'm sure given more time, they could have developed a, a bit of more coherent partnership. I just felt like one of them had to be given kind of the keys to the team, as it were. And maybe you're right, Vieira sensed that uh, that was, for the future, going to be Fabregas. 
Hello, uh, producer Tyo here. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix. It's an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. You get to fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, your budget, your size, your shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from their selection of 100 brands, including established names and up and coming designers. Try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe. You can then pay for what you like and send back the rest. For your stylist's time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you buy. So remember, you try before you buy, delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast, please, by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co uk forward slash athletic thanks it's slightly painful for me to talk about his departure because i so didn't want him to go but but it, he, you, we knew he was a barcelona kid we knew that what he wanted to do was step into that barcelona team and replace xavi um i mean it, it took him a couple of years do you think for him he left at the right time I mean, I know for Arsenal, it, there was never going to be a right time. But do you think for him, it was the right move? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like everybody, I think everyone at Arsenal would have loved him to have stayed for kind of ever and ever. Amen. But uh, looking at the quality of player that he was, looking at the um, period of austerity that was beginning to impact on team development, looking at the fact that it was Barcelona and there's players who were never from that region and grew up on that doorstep and went to La Masia, who absolutely lost it when the idea of going to Barcelona came along. It, you know, it's the fulfilment of a kind of lifetime achievement to play for a club of that cachet um, yeah. and that status. And much as everyone likes Arsenal, you, you can't quite say from an international perspective that Arsenal are where Barcelona are. It's just a fact of life. Um, so I think that I certainly didn't have any grudge whatsoever when he went to Barcelona. Had he gone to another club, I think it might have felt more disappointing. But I think there was a certain logic to it all that meant... Arsene Wenger was always very interesting when he was dealing with players who were at that point where they were maybe thinking of going somewhere else. That he used to actually give the players feelings, quite a lot of uh, credibility... A lot of managers would be purely selfish and would be thinking, this guy's good for my team, I'm going to do anything I can to keep him here. But Arsene Fenger always looked slightly more broadly at the human element. Yeah. And time and again, he would look at a player, look at their potential and look at what they had in front of them in what is a short career. And I think that he would never stand in someone's way if he felt that they were following their heart. Um, which, is what, which was why there was a lot of really hard goodbyes around that period. When Arsenal were, you know, post-Invincibles, post-Champions League final 2006, when things became more difficult to compete, I think that Wenger would always have some empathy with a player who felt, look, I need to go and try and win stuff here. You know, I love this guy. You look at Van Persie, for example, and that was, in a way, a much more contentious move, albeit people sometimes view them similarly. But um, I, 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 I wouldn't say I was pleased for Cesc to go back there, but in a way I was, because I... I loved him. I thought he was a magnificent player and Arsenal had some wonderful years of his football. Uh, my bigger disappointment, frankly, was that he didn't come back. And that's not something that I would ever sort of lay at Cesc Fabregas' door because he wanted to come back. But it was Arsenal that took that choice not to go back in for him. Uh, which meant that if he was, you know, when it, when the time came that it was, you know, enough at Barcelona, he needed to find somewhere else to play and he wanted to come back to Arsenal. But my regret is never really that he left, but that he never came back. James, I mean, when he left, it's interesting because G with Irish, he calls himself son of a beach, 23 on Twitter, said he's, he, I think Cesc broke Arsenal's heart and mine in brackets and Arsenal was never the same after. His decline at Arsenal started there. Now, I mean, I suppose the point I'm making is 
as much as Amy's saying that, that Arson understood the, the desire of Seth to leave, he had that emotional tie that it, it never felt quite the same after he left. And, and maybe that's part of the reason he didn't want him back. Maybe. I mean, I do think there is something in this idea that he did break his heart a bit because, you know, I think Arsene did have this vision of we will build this team with these young players. They'll develop together. They'll build a culture. And, you know, I think he sensed that if they could just get that one trophy over the line, suddenly things might open up for them. Things might change. Uh, I mean, I would say, you know, Arsene didn't really win a trophy between the period, you know, of 2000 five and 2011 when Sess left and then after Sess left he started picking up a few FA Cups so <laughs> I don't think it's yeah. quite right that it finished him off but I, I think it was a blow to him definitely and I think that he it, he th- he changed his mind a little bit about how he thought about the team I think everything became a bit more short term for Arsene after that point uh, there were less projects for him and it was a really really painful departure and I hope I can only say that I hope that didn't play into the decision to not bring him back because like Amy, I mean, I've I found that much more heartrending really when he came back to England and went to Chelsea. And, you know, the, the logic from a public perspective was, well, we've signed Mesut Ozil and therefore, you know, we feel we don't require another playmaking midfielder. But, you know, I don't think it takes a great leap of the imagination to picture how Fabregas and Ozil might have combined or worked together and Fabregas might have been able to pick Ozil out from deep. I mean, good football players find a way to coexist. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was a, a tough one. And Sesk was really keen to come back to Arsenal because, funnily enough, you know, the Barcelona move, as much as he did win things there, it didn't quite pan out as planned, really. He was never no. um, the focus of that team. He, he played as a false nine. He played on the left wing. You know, it, it didn't quite it wasn't the dream that he'd hoped for. And I think maybe Sesk had a sense of, a little sense of what he might have given up by leaving Arsenal. Henry, uh, Henry Nettle on Twitter, um, uh, he actually asked, in hindsight, would re-signing Sesk have been a better move than signing Ozil? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of, there are a few questions about comparing uh, the two. Ozil, I guess, won more trophies at Arsenal than Sesk. But um, is that is that a fair question, do you think, maybe to re-sign Sesk rather than move for Mesut Ozil? It's, well, I mean, it was at that same period, wasn't it? And I always felt yes. that, you know, James makes a really good argument for trying to get both of them, but it was a pure financial scenario where it was a kind of one or the other situation. And um, I, I don't know how much of the final decision comes down to... Uh, were there emotional scenarios that kind of were hung over from before? I mean, Arsene, generally speaking, didn't like to go back. He had quite a few opportunities no. Uh, no. To, to, to work again with players or invite them to his coaching staff or, you know, over the 22 years. And he was always quite reluctant. Uh, it wasn't something that came easily to him. Um, so uh, Sol Campbell came back very briefly. Jens Lehmann came back very, very briefly. But over the whole period, when you look at the amount of players who wanted to come back in one capacity or another, and the door was sort of closed back at them. Sorry, I forgot Thierry Henry, who obviously came back that, briefly, that, but very that importantly. Um, that yeah, exactly. Well. But but it wasn't something he that, that he felt that comfortable to do too often. So I don't know how much that was a, a part of the thinking or whether it was, you know, things to do with uh, how many shirts you're going to sell. I mean, obviously, Meza Ozil signing had a certain... A commercial aspect, I think, that came with it. When he signed, it was a massive deal. We can't forget that. I think there was probably a whole bunch of stuff at play, but it was never really realistic we were going to sign both, I think. And yeah. I, I, you know, I sometimes wonder whether Sesk would have been, you know, would have been the one I might have gone for, but I'm sure Arsene has his, you know, a lot of reasons. He's a very logical guy. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'd love to know really what the what the final kind of arguments and pros and cons were of of those two. Well, Ashish KM10 asked this question: Who added more value to the team, Peak Özil or Peak Fabregas? I mean, James, I always think that Fabregas is the more emotional choice of the two. Uh, it's it's I, I I find it a little bit harder to love Mesut Özil. I can love watching him play on occasion, but what what's your view of that question? 
I think you're right. I think there's something in that. Fabregas played with a certain fire that, as a fan, you know, it charges something within you. And uh, it's, yeah, I sort of, I feel Fabregas maybe more than I do as like an appreciate Ozil, but it's maybe slightly more of an intellectual pursuit. Uh, So, yeah, I, I think Fabregas as well was a goal scorer. I mean, he scored some massive goals for Arsenal. Um, and, you know, we mentioned a couple earlier, but there were other occasions. I remember him coming on injured against Aston Villa and um, making a massive difference, turning the game around there. Uh, I think he had more direct impact on things. And I think he played in a worse team at times. I know there was the great years, 2007, 2008, but there were also tricky years. Um, and he made us tick in those periods. So I I would go for Fabregas. I think also over the course of his Arsenal sort of uh, career he was more consistent whereas if you look at Ozil admittedly there's some recency bias here but his performances have really tailed off in a way that Fabregas's didn't and it's worth remembering that when he came back to the Premier League with Chelsea it's not like he came back as a stroller you know not really making an impact he came back and he won the Premier League instantly in his first season yeah. uh, he won two yeah. Premier Leagues two FA Cups and a League Cup and actually that relationship with Diego Costa in that first season I mean wouldn't, we don't like to talk about these things but that was <laughs> you know a classic use of somebody's brilliant qualities and you know Fabregas was superb at just finding this striker time and time and time and time again and laying, it, laying a, a, a chance on a plate for him and um, mm. you know when you think of some of the, the players that, that Arsenal had a lot of uh, attacking players of similar time um, Giroud, Podolski, Walcott uh, Alexis Sanchez you know you can imagine that Fabregas still would have had plenty uh, of capacity to provide an absolute ton of goals for Arsenal over that period too um, and yeah, anyway it wasn't to be I remember the first time when Seth signed uh, for Chelsea and he played against Burnley away, uh, I believe it was. And uh, my mate, who's a Chelsea fan, was complaining bitterly. What's he do? It's all these sideways passes, nothing going on. And then he played this assist to uh, to Scherler, who came running in. One of those passes like Bergkamp used to do, where you think, who's that to? Oh, wow. And Scherler scored. And my friend sort of turned to me and went, OK, he's, he's not bad then. <laughs> And it honestly felt like a dagger to my heart. I mean, I I just didn't want to see him do things like that. And there's a question here uh, from uh, Eric Mizell. I think it is Mizell 8. Is his Arsenal legacy tarnished by the nature of his departure? And I'm going to add by the fact that he ended up playing for Chelsea and winning the title afterwards as well. I think for some people it always will be, won't it? I mean, the departure was... (sighs) Uh, acrimonious, shall we say, in that in that yeah. he very definitely wanted it, and I think you know the club had to dig their heels in. I'm not sure they were completely opposed to the idea of letting Fabregas go. It was more the fact that they Barcelona were trying to do the deal on the cheap that I think Arsenal really resented, and that was the way Barcelona did business. It was very public. They courted the player. They tried to make it look like a, a fait accompli, and then they tried to lowball uh, the offer. And Arsenal dug their heels in. Wouldn't do that. Fabregas dug his heels in, what wanted to get what he wanted. And it was it was unseemly and it was sad. But I, I personally, I can only speak for myself, I got it. I, I understood that he wanted to go and play for Barcelona. He saw this as his time, his chance. Arsenal weren't necessarily pulling up trees at that, at that moment in time. I think it was shortly after the, the League Cup final, wasn't it? It was, it was around that yeah. time that we lost to Birmingham. Uh, I understood it. And I, uh, I'm not enjoying this let's... podcast that much anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I, I, all right I got at the beginning. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it, I think it is. I think it does tarnish it, and I think playing for a rival club again tarnishes it. I mean, I, every time I think of Cesc Fabregas now, unfortunately, you know, it's slightly tainted by an image of him embracing Jose Mourinho, you know, at Stamford Bridge and things like that. Oh but, God! Um, I know. Trying. I'm trying to block Stop it out, it. but it is there. <laughs> It is there. <laughs> yeah, what about you, Amy? I, I mean, we'll always love the way he played, but has his legacy been tarnished by the subsequent, you know, leaving in in the way that he did and then going to play for Chelsea? No, not really. When I look back at his Arsenal uh, highlights, I don't, I don't sit there and think that I'm disappointed. I feel blessed that uh, 
we watch such a fine talent flourishing in front of our eyes, you know, from being 16 years old uh, to his early 20s, uh, just becoming better and better and more and more influential and uh, brightening up our football experience. And as I said before, uh, I think I think sometimes we have a habit as football fans of taking things deeply personally when maybe we don't need to. And I don't think he left it because he hated anyone or he wanted to, you know, stick to proverbial two fingers up at Arsenal. He didn't have... He, I think he's very, very, very fond of his time at Arsenal and always was and always will be. And even when he was at Chelsea, if you compare it to, say, Ashley Cole, for example, who almost felt that he needed to disown his Arsenal past when he was there, um, which I thought was really quite tragic, but there you go. Uh he you got know, a Sesky lot of hatred, felt... though, Amy, didn't he? He got a lot of hatred, Ashley Cole. Who, as Sesk or Ashley Cole? I think it was less. Yeah, yeah maybe, but uh, I also think they're different personalities. Um, and I think Sesk is, uh, has always been quite an original thinker, quite a bright boy, um, able to to take things for what they are and, and not kind of get too strung up on this or that. And I... I really felt, even as when he was a Chelsea fan, that he was very careful to to not show any sort of particular disrespect, um, because the club and what what he experienced there is a massive part of his life. Yeah, it was a pleasure watching him, and uh, and you know he seems to be a gooner. Uh, as he moves into um, middle age, <laughs> I say middle age. He's probably in his mid thirties, <laughs> but that, that seems to be where he is. And uh, I, I feel the same way. I'm just glad that we've uh, we've watched him. <laughs> James, you've written a piece. We've been talking about one of the greatest midfielders ever to play for our club. Uh, you've written a piece uh, about uh, another Spanish midfielder who hasn't obviously had the same effect as yet, uh, Danny Ceballos. Um, mm. I, I mean, what's the situation with him at the moment? The situation is he's on loan from Real Madrid. The loan expires at the end of June, uh, June 30th. And there's no clause, you know, that Arsenal have to enact it in order to do a permanent deal. If they wanted to keep Danny Ceballos, they've got to negotiate themselves a deal with Real Madrid, who it looks like would want somewhere between 30 and £40 million pounds for his services. So not... Not a small amount of money, a fair chunk of change. And yeah, with the season ending, well, not ending, but certainly being put on hold when it has, it leaves uh, him in a bit of a, an awkward position, really, because he just kind of earned a place in the first team, but probably not done quite enough yet to establish himself or convince Arsenal to part with that sort of money. I mean, Amy, we were talking about him yesterday, uh, Danny Ceballos, and it's hard. We've, like I say, we've been talking about Cesc Fabregas and what he could do. And we were also talking about Santi Gazzola and what he could do. And Danny Ceballos is not at that, that level. I think he hasn't given us quite what we'd hoped for, yes? Well, I think everybody goes back to that first 45 minutes against Burnley when um, it felt like a, a kind of a new dawn of something. But when you put it in the perspective of, uh, whatever, six, seven months of a season, um, I haven't been massively overwhelmed with, uh, with Danny Ceballos. I know that... It, Particularly lately, people have been quite excited with his contributions in recent games. But I'm not convinced he's a guy that I would be spending any kind of serious money on. Uh, as a squad player, as an option, if, if the price was, was modest, uh, absolutely. But if you're talking 30, 40 million quid, I think Arsenal have quite a lot of surgery, ideally, that they'd be doing to this squad. Uh, if you asked Mikel Arteta and put him on a truth drug and said, OK, we're, you know, what exactly do you want here? I would imagine there's kind of quite a lot of movement. I would like the Arsenal bring in, when football resumes and when it's all possible, a fantastic dominant midfield pair that you can hang the gamer on. And I'm not sure that Danny Ceballos is that man. James, to be fair... He's been playing in a team that has sort of played in fits and starts. There's been all sorts of emotional uh, things going on. The manager has changed. We've had a we've had a um, a caretaker manager for five games. It's not an easy place to play, is it? No, and I mean, I mean, the reason that this piece came about talking about Sabas, I'll confess, is that 
our analytics stats expert, Tom Werville at The Athletic, got in touch with me and said, have you seen Danny Sabaz's defensive numbers? And I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about, to be honest. It completely passed me by. And he brought up the, the figures and it turned out that he was making significantly more tackles and interceptions uh, for Arsenal than any other midfield player on our books. More than Granite Xhaka, more than Lucas Torreira. I mean, twice as many as Lucas Torreira in both those counts. So what was really interesting to me is to see this guy who I think of as a creative midfield player, but who under Arteta is actually getting through a surprising amount of defensive work. And that makes me sort of think, well, I'm not sure about Xhaka and Ceballos as a partnership. I think both of them probably want too much time ball. I think in some ways they're too similar. But if Shaka does go this summer, which I think is still a possibility given everything that occurred with him this season, maybe, maybe Ceballos might have some mileage as a, a possible replacement. The other thing that the Athletic are doing uh, in this in this time of no uh, no football at present, um, and they've they've decided to do a reboot of um, for some strange reason the 1998-99 season. Uh, now I, I'm not sure any Arsenal fans particularly want to talk about. Well, particularly the last month and a half of that season. Um, but one of the players who did play in that season and um, and starred in that season uh, was Ray Parler. Now, uh, um, James, you've also written a piece uh, about the, the, the headline, Ray Parler was misunderstood, underappreciated and loved at Arsenal. I mean, he was the Romford Pele, wasn't he? Absolutely, dubbed thus by Mark Overmars. And, you know, it's funny that 98-99 season, we all, it's incredibly painful for us to think about now. But actually, for the vast majority of it, Arsenal played some really good stuff. And in that running, with the exception of two games, really, the semi-final and the match at Ellen Road, Ooh. the results were pretty... <laughs> I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, everyone. But the results <laughs> were pretty excellent. And there were some players at the top of their game, and I think none more so than Ray Parler. I mean, he was, I think he was the fans player of the year in 1998. And in 99, it, around this time, he got his uh, call up under Kevin Keegan. He made his England debut against Poland. And I, I think I was just writing about how there's sort of a perception outside Arsenal that, you know, people, I think maybe reference Parler's limitations or we all remember Tim Lovejoy. There's only, it's only Ray uh, Parler. But actually, yeah. he was a really fantastic player. And a fascinating player too, because he kind of bridges two eras. You know, he came through in that time of the Tuesday Club, and he was roommates with Paul Merson and Tony Adams, and, and you know, part of that culture. And then when Arsene Wenger came in, he assimilated, he changed, he really knuckled down, and he became sort of an integral part of Arsene Wenger's teams and squads, going right all the way through to the Invincibles. Uh, and I think. Sometimes because he's such a big character and he's so entertaining and he's got so many great stories, they, they're they foregrounded. But I don't want people to forget how good a footballer he could be because he really was excellent for Arsenal in that period. I was fortunate enough to work with Ray on his, on his autobiography, which was, um, you can imagine, uh, 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 extremely light-hearted in, 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 in yeah. general. And he regaled with me with so many stories I really couldn't keep up fact checking them was a laugh he does like to el elaborate every now and then or exaggerate he's an absolutely hilarious and heart of gold kind of a guy um he'd do anything for people around him to have a good time and feel up and you can see why he was so loved in the dressing room uh, by all his teammates and you need bubbly people around within a group and especially when sometimes there's a lot of tension around, you need someone who's going to pierce that tension. And I think Ray could be kind of guaranteed to do that. He is very, very optimistic. He's almost always jovial. And I was fascinated by Arsene Wenger's decision to almost overlook some of Ray's old school um, ways at a time where he slowly, slowly... Either people change themselves, like like Tony Adams most famously, or people were moved on um, yeah. out the club, and the culture did change in a huge way. And and then by the time by the time the Invincibles came along, you know, in, in from that point of view of being a a, a veteran or, or graduate of the Tuesday Club, he was kind of the last man standing in that group. You know, they were a really serious group of players uh, about their football. 
and Ray was serious about his football and worked hard as anybody, but he still liked the life outside of it. And he was the only one. And it was almost as if Arsene thought, I'll, I'll turn a blind eye to that because I love what he brings to the club and I love what he brings to the team. James, in your piece, uh, Lee Dixon said he knew his role, he knew what he was good at. He didn't try to do things that, say, David Rocastle or Robert Perez would do because he knew his limitations. I mean, he's the ultimate team player in some respects, Ray Parley. You know, he did, I mean, Lee would say to himself, if he was here, he did a lot of his room for him and probably prolonged his career in the process. And just to touch back on what Amy was saying about Arsene overlooking certain elements of Parler's lifestyle and things like that. As Amy will well know, Arsene wrote the, the foreword to Ray's book. And I think he says in that, I'm approximating, but he says something like that the good elements of that culture outweighed the bad. And I think in Ray, he found a guy who not only was a good footballer, he really was a really important positive presence in that dressing room and someone who bridged the gap sometimes between you know, the English and the French, someone who was prepared to have a laugh with anyone, to take the mickey out of anybody. And I think that that really helped bring that group together in that late 90s period. So he was invaluable to Arsene and Arsene showed that many times. You know, he in 1998, in the summer, he gave him a, a pay rise, doubled his money without asking him to sign any more years on his contract. I mean, I think that shows the esteem he was held in and he stayed there all the way to 2004. And I think... Perhaps if he'd wanted to stay beyond that on a, a one-year rolling contract, I think the offer would have been there for him. But he, he chose to go to Middlesbrough and they parted ways there. But not a bad Arsenal legacy to leave uh, on the Invincible title. Following on from what James was saying there, I, I absolutely concur with this idea that uh, for the for the continental players who came in, they, they loved Ray and they, they developed a different kind of affinity for the club through Ray than they might have done otherwise. All those people, and it's not just people like Ray, it was people working behind the scenes in the cakers and the real sort of salt of the earth Arsenal people who had been there kind of all their lives really gave something important to the players who arrived from overseas and made them feel part of something bigger and connected. And Ray said that uh, one day Thierry Henry said to him, Thierry and, uh, loved Ray, um, I'm going to Nike Town. They're like opening late for me. You know, do you want to come along? So he said, oh, great. So I think Ray went along with maybe his partner at the time and Thierry was there with a friend or something like that. And Nike Town was completely closed except for them. And Ray grabbed a trolley. And, it, you know, it was, it's a bit like the kind of stockpiling loo roll scenario that's going on at the moment. I think he, every, he got handfuls of stuff, like everything he could possibly get. And, and and appeared at the till, and like Thierry had one box of trainers, <laughs> but just uh, you know, this kind of sums up for me the sort of the sweetness of how they all got along with each other, and how there was, you know, there were things that made them culturally a little bit different from one another, but there was a real sense of unity and love for one another that was fantastic and really brilliant for that. I think the whole country needs a Ray Parler at the moment, doesn't it? True. Let's have uh, a song from each of you. We have been talking, of course, a lot about Cesc Fabregas. Uh, Amy, do you have a song for Cesc? Uh, oh, I didn't know it was a song for Cesc. I thought it was just a song of our times. Um, oh, all right. But I, I, have a song. I, the trouble is, last night, Tayo said you're forbidden from choosing Ghost Town. And, of course, since that moment, I've had total earworm of Ghost Town, which, um, which is driving, which is good and bad. Uh, but then I started thinking about ghost-related songs and it gave me an opportunity to uh, pick a song by Japan, who wouldn't necessarily be... Uh, I don't know how many of our listeners are uh, are fans of sort of 1980s post-punk new romantic synth uh, sounds. I'd gauge not that many, but I loved Japan. And they had a great song called Ghosts, but they also had a song called Quiet Life, which felt apt for how things are going at the moment out there quietening down James I mean yeah I, along a similar theme really I had uh, I mean they're not too cheerful the best one I can think of was Isolation <laughs> by Joy Division but uh, oh. I think there's three of us and one of Tayo so I think we can overrule and insist on the specials insist on Ghost Town do you know what if that's the case I'm going to insist on that because I think that's an absolutely fantastic I mean. song and I think it sums up our times <laughs> This town is coming like a ghost town. 
We've been the uh, Handbrake Off podcast for The Athletic. Thanks to Amy. Thanks to James. Thanks to Teo for producing us. Uh, the Athletic will continue to be putting pieces out there. Uh, and we will as well. The Handbrake Off podcast will do our best to keep you entertained in these rather strange times. And we will be doing it probably remotely uh, for a little while Follow uh, to follow the best safety advice. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking about Seth uh, and I uh, hope you enjoyed listening. I'm Ian Stone. Thanks very much. See you soon.